Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, tis the season where we are talking about slavery and freedom. It's funny because Passover is one of the most expensive holidays of the whole year, and one of those years where if you're ever going to feel, uh, you know, that there is a certain slavery when it comes to debt and money and how much we can spend, etc., Passover is a time you usually feel it. Uh, so that being said, I am thrilled to have Mara Strom on, who is the author of the wildly successful budgeting uh, blog, kosheronabudget.com. She's on Twitter. She's all over the place. And we talk about how it's possible to live a Jewish life while not being horrifically in debt and also not coming from a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, kind of leftover wealth, et cetera. How do, you, how do you actually practically do it? So I know this is a huge pain point for so many of us, and I'm so excited to have Mara on and to discuss with her this important topic. Thank you so much. How do you live the Jewish life with the kids, with the kosher food, with the day school, with the shul dues, with the real estate, um, you know, that, that a lot of us, when we got attracted, I don't know your personal story, you know, when it comes to Judaism, but a lot of us, when we got attracted, saw the beauty of Torah life and never really put, you know, kind of facts and figures together about how much this stuff actually costs. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about your personal story, how you came to starting your blog, Kosher on a Budget, and doing the financial coaching that you're doing. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And you're right. This is this is a pretty uh, pervasive story. Um, and even people who make by any other standards, really good money, um, find themselves struggling with this. And that 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 can be very, very frustrating and disheartening. So, okay. Um, nine years ago, my husband and I at the time were living in Israel. Um, we're actually back in Israel now, and then we were in the States for nine years. So nine years ago, at the tail end of our first time living in Israel, uh, we found ourselves about $30,000 in consumer debt. I'm not counting our mortgage, just you know, credit cards, car loans, consumer debt, $30,000. And I had this mounting sense of angst and anxiety about it uh, that sort of grew with every single month. We had gotten to that phase where we were like using one credit card to pay down the next and, you know, you know those games that they play on the boardwalk with the walnut and the cups and you try to guess where it is? That's where I felt like, you know, with our money. And I, I just, it was terrible. So nine years ago, I sort of had my, uh, my rock bottom moment, if you will, where I was sitting in my house having a panic attack because I heard the mailman approaching my house. And why did that cause a panic attack? Because I knew he had in his hand a bill. I didn't know which one it was, but I knew he had a bill that I did not know how we were going to pay. Um, and compounding all of that just angst about the money was all the messaging I was telling myself, like, you graduated summa cum laude, and why can't you get your act together, and what's wrong with you, and you have no self-discipline, and you have no self-control, and you're clueless, and, you know, all this negative messaging that I was telling myself, on top of the very real fact that we had $30,000 in debt, and we're barely making $30,000 a year, so we were in big trouble. So that's when I had my rock bottom moment, and I said, something has to change. And I remember I asked some friends on a message. If I could just interrupt you, what did that, yeah. what was the practical effect? Just, I think that it's one of those things that no one wants to talk about or acknowledge. Uh, so I guess hearing other people go through it, what was that having, what effect was that like on your family and on your marriage? Like how did that kind right. of fuel things? Right. 
So, you know, it's probably a little bit different for everybody. I, you know, internalize a lot of things. I tend to um, sort of go off and deal with things like on my own. So there was a lot of like just bad angsty feelings going on inside of me. A lot of, you know, not being able to breathe, heart racing, you know, true anxiety signs. And then also just a lot of just, just feeling bad about myself. And then that of course reflects onto other things. And then, you know, it could have caused me to maybe lean on my husband more, but sometimes it made me feel like, like, Oh, I just have to take care of it all of myself. So it was, it was very, very complicated for us. And, and it's interesting that you ask about that. My children at the time were very little. I don't think they felt they knew to feel, you know, what was going on. They were four and two. Um, you know, now they're very aware of finances in a way that I um, is, is a big focus for us, right? We, we want our kids to, to grow up and launch into their adult lives without the cluelessness and the baggage that we had. Um, so that's something that since we've turned our financial lives around, we've really focused on helping them to be in a good place with that. So um, what you asked about how it affected sort of the marriage and how that translated itself in real terms, I, I see this so much in the couples that I work with. And, you know, sometimes there are li- like just marriage issues that are beyond sort of my scope as a budget coach. And I'll say, you know, this seems like maybe something bigger that's translating into the money piece. But oftentimes the money piece can be the one thing that just sort of pulls apart at the fabric of a marriage. They say it's one of the top three reasons for divorce. Um, So this is, you know, very real. But but why? But how? I mean, I'm sorry to be so direct on this topic, but I think that if one of, the, one of the principles that I use in, in my coaching is if, if people realize sort of what's affecting them, at least they don't think that it's endemic and it's like something wrong with them. It's just part of the situation. Correct. So what does is, what is that stress look like? How does it manifest in some of the clients that you work with? So let me tell you first why I think it's such a problem. This is what I think. I think that most people don't grow up Um, in homes where they learn healthy, functional messages about money. You know, money at the end of the day is really just supposed to be a tool, right? It's supposed to allow us to acquire things, whether it's goods and services, you know, savings, whatever it is. It's supposed to be a tool for another goal. But very rarely do people just dispassionately look upon money as a tool. Most of the time, there's all these other things that go into how we see money and how we see our relationship with money. As I was saying before, I thought, like, why are you such a loser? These are the messages I was telling myself, right? You're you're a loser because you have money problems. There's something wrong with you. Because I can't figure it out. I must be a loser, right? So that that was what I was telling myself. Now, um, if most of us grow up in these in our families of origin, right, with with I might even say dysfunctional, certainly unhealthy, not dispassionate ideas about money. The thing is though that they're all different. All of our understandings about money and our feelings about money and, and our coping mechanisms for how we deal with money, they're different in every single family of origin. So you have your own dysfunction, and then you get married to someone else who has similar but yet totally different dysfunction of money. And it's just a recipe for combustion oftentimes, right? So, so there's, there's sort of two prototypes of people with money. There's the savers and the spenders, right? You know, people are, are you a saver or a spender? But it's not so simple because the question underlying that is, well, why is it important to you to save? You know, and most people who save, they don't do it again from some dispassionate sense of like, well, I've run the numbers and the compounding interest and this seems like a better use of our resources. It's, it's feeding something inside which doesn't 
feel secure oftentimes. The people who are saving, it's, it, sometimes it will almost reach like a hoarding level, right? Where they feel like no matter what they do, they're never going to be safe enough unless they save. Well, if you marry someone, you know, at that level extreme and you're on the other side of extreme, with the spending, just like oftentimes people will overeat, um, the, 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 the numbing sort of comfortingness of food, oftentimes people get with overspending. So there's a lot of, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I see in my own self and in the people that I talk to, there's a lot of stuff. I don't want to say pathologies, but there's a lot of stuff that goes into how we personally relate to money. And then we get a spouse who has his or her own stuff, but is not our stuff. And it's like, whoa, how do we, you know, figure this out? Because by the time we get to adulthood, most of us have developed coping mechanisms, right? They're not always healthy, but they're a coping mechanism. So if we have a coping mechanism for money, and then we're in a marriage with someone who has a totally fundamentally different coping mechanism for money, it challenges everything that we've built up until that point. So I just want to articulate back what you're saying in order to <laughs> make sure that, that I'm totally clear. So you have- We're going deep. No, this is that this is so important. So you have on one issue, you do have a, a a fundamental challenge with the numbers in terms of the expenses versus the the amounts we make. That that's point number one. But a big point number two is that we have an entirely different psychology when it comes to money. Some people are, yeah, you know, like you said, like medicating other feelings by spending money. You know, on Amazon always feels good to go shopping. On the other hand, they are feeding their need for comfort and security by hoarding everything they have and freaking out if anyone spends any money. So that's that. And then, and then when the money becomes tight potentially, then, you know, it sort of it exacerbates and kind of brings out these two crazy character traits that the spouses might yes. never have had to encounter on a date because who's talking about money per se on the date unless right. you know, you're, you're really wild on these kind of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, sometimes, um, again, just to get back to that, like, what do we use as our, as our, as our crutch, things can be seeming like they're going along okay. Um, and so we're not really in touch with that place in us that's feeling kind of like, you know, angsty, but something happens and all of a sudden it presses that button and it comes out, you know, in these conflicts over money. And I see it time and time and time again with couples. So there's small things that we can do to try to, to minimize those conflicts. There's strategies that we can try to implement in terms of our conversations, but oftentimes people need to do also kind of their own individual work, like figure out like, where is this coming from? Why is this, you know, such an issue for me? But fundamentally, you know, the numbers part um, even is I think there's not a lot of financial literacy. It's not something, and you know, this is taking out of the emotional range and just getting into the straight numbers. It's not something that I think is taught explicitly in homes. You know, we, we teach our kids how to do a lot of things, but it's not really one of those lessons that a lot of parents think, oh, I need to teach my kids, you know, how to manage a checking account, how to make a budget, how to how to, what a credit card is and how it works. I remember having a conversation with my teenage son and some of his friends two years ago. They were preteens at the time and we were talking about credit cards. And, and I shared with them that when I got my first credit card after college, there was a $5,000 limit. And I remember feeling and thinking, wow, I have $5,000. And as I said to my son and his friends, no, Chase had $5,000. I had nothing. And I tried to explain to them, really, how does a credit card work? Because there's so much, um, you know, ignorance around these issues. And this is why, of course, credit card companies tried to get college students to sign up for the cards because they don't know any better and they can get into trouble and, and owe them all sorts of interest. So the, the basics of financial literacy, we don't have enough information about as well. I would love to see it taught explicitly in Jewish schools. I think that, you know, 
there's a, there is a lot of privilege in a lot of Jewish schools. There's a lot of family who's struggling and there's a lot of privilege, but a lot, I, I see kids, you know, in the high schools who get credit cards from their parents and they never really have a sense of like, where did that money come from? Or what's an appropriate amount of money to spend? Parents feel uncomfortable or awkward to discuss it with their children. You know, we always have like these taboos around money. Even when we're handing a credit card to our child, oftentimes parents feel like, well, I don't really want to, you know, make it uncomfortable. Um, and then all well, of a sudden, they get a thousand dollar bill. I want to clarify why that is. Probably because some of the some of the psychological issues that the parents have about feeling like worth. If you tell your kids we don't have money for this, you you probably feel like you want to be um, correct. So that's, that's as anonymous as possible. Exactly, and and also as you mentioned, hopefully you'll go into more details about this in the in this school system. You do have this in a lot of cases a, a wide disparity between families that are in a lot of times covering multiple people's tuition, and on the other hand, you have families that are struggling to keep up and have to kind of keep up appearances. And so this whole experience of talking about it is, I think you'd say, highly rife with with problems. Because even if I think I, yes. I, I hopefully this is clear, but even if you have a lot of of money, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be safe because you could just make greater financial missteps that are going to just bring you back down. Correct. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and because in our communities, we tend to, um, especially in the Orthodox community, people tend to get married earlier, right? So this time in your 20s, when a lot of people in the secular world maybe are like kind of like sowing their oats and figuring stuff out and maybe making their own mistakes financially, but figuring it out and then, you know, getting married in their 30s and having some degree of financial security. A lot of people are getting married in their very early 20s with nothing and their parents are still supporting them. And so they sort of continue to be infantilized when it comes to money. Um, and at a certain point, you know, they have to have this like, whoa, what are, you know, it, it, it hits them like a big boom. So I, I think there's where to improve is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Definitely think there's where to improve. And it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, the mistakes are bigger. One of the things that I often say um, when I'm working with couples and, and on my blog, Coach on a Budget, is that um, unless you have infinite income, and the only people in the world who I think of of having infinite income are like Bill Gates type people, okay? So nobody who's listening to this has infinite income. You know, even a half a million dollars a year, which is an amazing salary, that's not infinite income. A million dollars, that's not infinite income. Because the point is that our wants and needs are virtually infinite, but our income is finite, which means at some point we're going to have to come up against, okay, what, where are my priorities? Now, listen, if you make $50,000 a year, that conversation comes a lot sooner and more frequently and more painfully. There's no doubt about it. A person making $50,000 a year versus a family making $500,000 a year, you're going to have to have those conversations differently. However, even the family that's making a half a million or a million dollars a year, they still can't buy a jet. You know, so there's certainly without, you know, taking that alone. So there's, there's still, there's still that conversation about like, okay, where do our priorities lie? And I think that this piece, the prioritization, there's so many people out there teaching you how to budget, how to make a budget. What do you put in the budget? How much should you put for this? Whatever. Sometimes I think that misses the mark because we don't have the foundational conversation about like, how do you A, clarify what your priorities are and then B, live your priorities through what you spend your money on. So many times I have couples say to me, you know, I wish we had money for fill in the blank, whatever it is, you know, giving more to tzedakah, going on vacation, buying a new car, getting shoes for my kid, whatever, you know, whatever the fill in the blank is. And I say, okay, that can feel bad to feel like you don't have money for the things that really matter. Let's track your spending. Let's look at what you're really spending money on. Because oftentimes there's a disconnect between what, what people say to me are the very most important things to them and what they're actually spending their money on. 
you know, it's like kind of like the little forest fires are getting all their attention and they're so busy putting out all the little fires that they're missing, you know, building what they really want to build because everything more pressing is sort of pushing up against them. In order to be able to do what they really want to do, they're going to have to say no to some of the things that they're currently doing. But some of those things may not even reflect their actual values and priorities. So what I try to do with couples is I try to get them to clarify, okay, what is the most important things to you? What are the most important things to you? Let's spend your money on those. And so, and I don't know if this was the, the practice that you've adopted now that you're coaching or that you, you started adopting when you were $30,000 in debt and had no idea what you're doing. But yeah. how do you, how do you like, how do you even start that kind of a conversation? And granted also a lot of times this is a conversation around with couples and they will both have different priorities about, you know, is, are we trying to buy a nicer pair of shoes or are we trying to save for, you know, yeshiva or college or something like that? So how do you, how do you work on that? That's right. That's right. So in terms of us, I mean, we were so deep into that pit that we couldn't even think about like, what do we wish we could do or what we just had to get out of the pit. Um, cause once you, once you come to ground level, it's like, oh, there's a little bit of light around here. You know, I can start to like think forward. Um, so the very first thing we did is we just started digging out of that pit. We, you know, cut our lifestyle to nothing. Um, even things that previously I'd been like, we're not living luxuriously. You know, I, I, I really didn't know where the debt came from. Cause I kept saying, we don't go on vacation. I don't have nice jewelry. You know, it's like, what are we doing? But then we started to look with a, a new eye, a critical eye at things and realize like all these things that I thought were just normative middle-class things to do because everyone else did them. We didn't have the money to do them. Such I mean, as. little things like we, uh, we were ordering, you know, at the time this was like before there were like whole house filters and all these things for the water. And so we were ordering these big, uh, jugs of like Eden water to be delivered to our house. Cause I don't like the way the water tasted. Right. So we're getting, these big jugs. I mean, it's water for Pete's sake. But we didn't have the money to spend 250 shekels a month on the May Eden. And those kinds of things, you know, the cable, the gifts for the kids' birthday presents, some of the different activities that they were involved in, we had to cut those down. Um, you know, it's every, every little, we looked at every single item and we said, okay, is this an absolute need? So we cut our lifestyle down to bare minimum, what do we need? You know, what are the four walls? Can I, can um, I just ask you on that? Because I think for most people, that's the most horrifying part. You know, correct. again, if you're looking at like a health thing also, it's like you're going to have to stop eating the donuts. So the question would be... But what, I love the donuts! Right, right. So the question is, what were you telling yourself or what was that experience like? Or, or more than that, how long was it tremendously painful for you to be cutting these things out before you said, you know, actually, I feel better by the fact that I'm saying no, but I'm actually, you know, climbing my way out of the hole. What was that experience like? Right. So, um, first of all, I recognize that I may not be, you know, typical. I, 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 I tend to like take a while to get to the decision, but then once I do, I like go straight into action mode. Um, and some people are the opposite. So for me, once we sort of diagnose the problem, I actually felt so much better. The very first thing we did, or I did actually, was I sat down and I made a list of everything we owed. You know, whether it was the money we owed my parents that they had loaned us to buy our van or the money to the electric, to the appliance store, we had bought an oven on payments, like our credit card bills, everything. We listed everything we owed. Now, some people find this really depressing and it sends them into a tailspin. I actually found it very empowering. I'm one of those like knowledge is power people. I'm like, okay, this is what we have to deal with. Let's deal with it. Um, 
cutting stuff in our life was hard. Um, I think it was made easier by the fact that we had children who were very young. Um, so they really weren't so aware of it. You know, they weren't, they weren't yet of the age where they wanted to keep up with their friends. We didn't yet have massive tuition bills because they, they were pre preschool age. Um, so it, that did make it easier to do. When I talk to couples who have family, you know, when I talk to families who have children who are teenagers or, you know, multiple children across, it's, it's, it is a more challenging proposition. We did it very quickly. We literally cut our lifestyle down to nothing. I hustled, hustled, hustled to make more money. I, I started working as a freelance writer, you know, and, and within a month, we went from spending $1,000 a month more than we were making to earning $1,000 a month more than we were spending. Yeah. So we had like a 2000 and again, remember, we weren't even making $50,000 a year at that point. Like we were not making, so that was a huge change and we just ran. Um, and really within- And, and I, I wanted to point, I just to, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think one of the points that I wanted to make is that for a lot of people who feel so guilty about the fact like you're saying $50,000 a year and I'm such a loser and I had such good, you know, I did so good in college and it's supposed to get me such a good job. But a lot of times when you're making very little, so then you could have one of these crazy transitions where, you know, when you're making an extra $500,000 a month, you're literally like doubling, tripling, whatever it might be. Changing your life. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So in some ways, I mean, obviously I don't want to say it's easier when you're making less money. Like obviously more money is always better, but um, it, it, it makes, it it forces you to clarify and there's no room to BS. You know, there's no, there's no, well, uh, no, this is do or die right now. And we, and we have to do, you know, if you're making a lot more money and if you can kind of fudge around the edges, it, it does cause people to, to prolong things. I think the ultimate thing, um, we wanted to do it as fast as possible. Could we have gone a little slower? Yeah. But I just wanted like, I, 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 once I diagnosed that problem, I needed it out. You know, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't live like that anymore. Uh, sometimes people do go slower, uh, either because, um, they just have more things that they can't cut out. You know, they're already into, into their commitment. I love to work with couples early in their marriages, early in their families, because I say like, you are in the best position possible because you can change things now for a whole lifetime. You know, you are, you are changing your trajectory in such ways that you can't even begin to imagine it now. You can still make that change when you're in your 40s or your 50s and you have older kids, but the, it, the change is harder to come by. And there's more emotional hurdles because you're more entrenched, your kids are more entrenched. It, it, it's a different kind of conversation, you know, to get that buy-in. Um, you know, similarly, we moved back to Israel, as I mentioned, in August. Um, and now, instead of having a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and an eight-year-old. That's a different conversation. When we moved from Israel to the States when they were four and two, it was like, guys, we're moving to the States. You know, now it's like, we want to get their buy-in. We want to make sure they're okay emotionally. But it's a different conversation. If you're going to radically change what you're doing with your finances and how you're spending your money, and you have older kids... I feel like you kind of owe it to them to try to get them on board. Ultimately, you're the parents. Ultimately, you have to make the decisions that you think are best. But an open dialogue and conversation with your kids is never going to hurt. Never going to hurt. Um, and it is harder to get buy-in for that. What do you do for people that are, you know, not 
horrifically in debt or aren't even looking and are just kind of, you know, kind of thinking. I think that one of the concepts, you know, that, that, that we struggle with as observant Jews is that there's this concept that, that God will give and that, you know, the, the flow is there and everything, you know, so the money's coming in, the money's going out and we're not really looking at it. So what would you say to someone that says, I'm making a good income, you know, I, I don't know how, how horrifically I'm in debt. Um, you know, I have these expenditures, like what's, what's that step for the kind of like the middle of the road type of person? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I want to tell you that sometimes I actually hear this exact question, right? Like people say, well, you know, I appreciate your advice, but I'm just not going to do this because, you know, Hashem is going to provide and I'm not going to cut back on what we're serving for Shabbos because that's, you know, that's Hashem's job and not my job. And I'm going to just trust in Hashem. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I see what you're saying. <laughs> But you need to have brisket and chalent, you know. Um, so, I mean, that is hard because there's like a mindset issue there. I mean, hashkafically, I feel like um, it, even if it's big picture provided not by us, we're in charge of using it and allocating it um, as wisely as possible. And one of the reasons um, that I think it's so important is because when you take care of your own house, you can then take care of other people's houses also. And, and you can't do that in a meaningful way. I mean, you may be able to sort of like give what you're required to in terms of Meister, but it's the, the, the feeling of, of true generosity cannot come when you're so deep in that pit. Um, and I think that pit can be translated as two ways. For us, it was just like that debt and, 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 and the monthly deficit and just feeling like, you know, we're crawling, crawling, crawling and never going to get to the top. But I think also... Um, there is a either conscious or subconscious sort of willful denial about what people are doing with their money that can cause that pit feeling also. Um, meaning, I think that a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't do this, my husband does this, or my wife does the money, you know, or, well, I don't know exactly how much I spend at the grocery store, but, you know, it's probably around $500. And they have teenagers, and I'm like, yeah, no, it's not $500, let me just tell you, you know. So I, I think that people don't know, forget about down to the dollar. I mean, I don't even think that they really know to the $100 or to the $200 of what's happening, you know, with their money. And then that translates into bigger things also, like, well, where are we giving? And just like I said, you know, we want to budget with intentionality and reflect our priorities. So where are we giving our money? Does that reflect our values and our priorities? Are we making as much of an impact as we can? What about our savings? How many people know, you know, this is our plan for our retirement and here's how we're investing and here's how our money is doing or even are we invested? You know, so all of these things, these resources may not have been you didn't make these resources, right? These resources were given to you. But all of these questions, they're not God's job. They're your job to answer those questions. And so even if you have, you know, that greater mindset of like, you know, Hashem's providing, I, you know, that's not my, my responsibility. Your responsibility is to make sure that you're doing it as wisely as you can to be worthy of that provision, I think. So that's, that's I, you know, to, I, I'm saying not to give, you, to give you a compliment. I think that that's one of the most phenomenal concepts that I've never heard applied to money, which is the idea and, and a phenomenal response to that, to that question of, you know, when you say God will provide, well, the answer is God gives you life, but you have to kind of dial into what, what do I have? What am I good at? What am I supposed to be focusing on? Otherwise, you're not going to actualize the potential that God gave you. So this conversation you're saying is, fundamental for that for that flow of 
I guess, you know, the, 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 the financial flow to actually work and to be used the way it's supposed to be. I, yes. Awesome. Yes. It reminds me of, you know, the joke about like the man on the roof and saying, oh, God will save me. Right. And then, you know, he's right. like, I sent the boat, I sent the whatever. So, right. Okay. So you're, you're the boat, you're the helicopter. You're right. So for 30, for, from 30,000 feet, I know this is an entire practice that you do. And hopefully also tell us about how you work with couples, but just, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, you mentioned create your priorities, figure out what your expenses are. What, what are some of the other like really fundamental principles that you would advocate and in what order to couples that are trying to live a more financially responsible way? Okay. So, so you, when, when I work with a couple and, and really, I mean, I love working with couples, but I, you know, you can do this on your own as well. The, the first thing I do is I send them a survey. You know, it's, a, it's really sort of a values clarification survey, but I also ask questions like, how much money do you make and how much money does your spouse make and how much money is your deductible on your homeowner's policy and those kinds of questions. I send one copy and I ask them each to print it and do it separately. <laughs> and one of the most elucidating things is that time and again, the answers come back different and not just on the what are your values and priorities questions, but basic things like how much money do you spend every month on tuition and vastly different numbers, which tells me, okay, we have a problem here just in terms of the data, right? Let's, let's, let's get on the same page with the data first before we try to clarify the values. So that's, that's, a, that's, that's the first piece of it is like, let's figure out what we're dealing with. And then along those lines, the first thing that I tell anybody who wants to get in, in, you know, a handle on their finances to stop feeling controlled by their money, but rather to control their money is to track their spending. And it's the most avoided, dreaded task. And I get it because when we started doing this nine years ago, that was the one piece that I couldn't wrap my head around doing. Like I literally carried a notebook around with me and every, you know, wrote down everything and then dumped it into an Excel chart at the end of every day. And it was drudgery. The beautiful thing is now we all have cell phones and there's computer apps for this. And, and it's so much less painful than it was, you know, even nine years ago. Uh, but the reality is that people don't know where their money is going. The big stuff, they might be able to look at their bank account and say, oh, this is my mortgage and this is what I paid to the school and this is how much you know, I pay for my insurance policy. But everything else, the non-fixed costs, it's very hard for them to replicate. And so often people will say, I just don't know where my money goes. Like literally, I don't know where it goes. Okay, so track your expenses, right? Every time you spend money, whether it's on a credit card, a debit card, a check or cash, track it figure out where it's going and put it into broad categories. You know, it doesn't need to be like, this is for, you know, the shoes for my daughter and this is for the shoes for my son. No, just clothing for the family is, is, is a fine category, but track it and figure out what's going on. And I recommend that people track for two months, which then they really roll their eyes at me, you know, because they want to track for like seven days and then multiply that by 52 and say, oh, now I know what I'm doing with my money, you know, for the year. But it's not true because there are ebbs and flows to our lives, which impact what we do with our money, right? So I guarantee you that in September and April, people spend more at the grocery store than they do in December and June, right? The Chagim are a very expensive time. And we're also spending more at the beauty shop. And we're also spending more, you know, if people have a shaytel to, you know, get their shaytel done. And you're spending more on clothing. And you're spending more on tzedakah. All of these categories, these variable categories, vary, that's why they're variable, depending on the time of the year. 
it even matters, you know, if it's June and you've got four weddings to go to, you're going to spend more money on gifts than you will in February if you have no smachot to go to in February. So these things do vary, which is why I encourage people to track for at least two months, to get two months worth of data before they start trying to figure out, okay, how do we set some goals? How do we start tightening this up? Where can we cut? Where are the leaks that, you know, where do we analyze? How do we analyze this data? Get two months worth of data first. Even just the act of getting this is going to put you so far ahead of the average person out there who's struggling with their finances because most people just don't know. So I, as I said earlier, I'm a big believer in knowledge is power. Once you have this knowledge, you are in the power position to begin to change things, right? You can say, hey, look at this. We're spending a lot of money on whatever category it is. And fundamentally, I'm not sure if that category really reflects our values and priorities. How can we divert that? How can we do a little bit better? Oh, I'm shocked. I can't believe we're spending so much money at the grocery store. I would have thought it was half that. What's going on? What kind of plans can we put in place? And parenthetically, I want to add that I recently did a reader survey, okay, of my, of my readers on Kosher on a Budget, and the number one thing they asked me to create was a course about how to save money at the grocery store. This is for kosher consumers, you know, we are all leaking like crazy at the grocery store. So that's what I'm working on actually right now is creating, creating that program to teach people how do you cut 30 or 40% from your grocery budget every single month without, you know, ceasing to feed your family. <laughs> okay, so, so I feel like this could go on for a very long time. I want to be cognizant of your time. Please tell us a little bit about how you help clients, what you advise, the kind of programs you have, the one-on-one -on -one coaching, what you have available to those people who want to kind of take that step and to bring in some help with creating the financial situation that they want in their life. Okay, so I do provide one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, you can go to Kosher on a Budget, and it's right there under the About section, information about my coaching. And the way I work, as I said, is I send out the survey, um, and then I analyze it, and I make my you know, set of recommendations, and then we get on a two-hour phone call. Um, I used to say it was an hour. Then I said it was an hour and a half, and then I'm like, okay, let's face it. It's really two hours. I should just call it two hours, um, which is a long call, but we go deep. Um, and some of the conversations are very tuchless, you know, very much like, okay, this is how you need to set up your budget. And some of the conversations are more like, okay, how can we build consensus around issues? You know, where should we put our emphasis? What are the priorities? More values clarification. People are in different places with these kinds of things. I try to be very frank and very honest, and I say, listen, I know I'm going to say some things that are painful to hear, but this is what I think. And then I go ahead and I, and I lay out those things that are more painful to hear. Some clients are really eager and just go ahead and do it, and they have phenomenal success. And some are like a little bit more resistant, you know, and it takes a little bit more massaging. At the end of the day, if someone is going to pay me to work with me, I assume that they're sort of more in the mindset of like, we're ready to make some changes, right? We're, we're ready to do this. So that's the first conversation. They come out with a list of bulleted points of what they're going to work on. And again, it's different for every couple. Some couple, they're already specifically into the budgeting phase and they're tracking and they're ready to start tweaking individual things. For some couples, it's more big picture and we're not quite into the details yet. And then we have a follow-up conversation after about six to eight weeks. And I go ahead and I let them tell me when they're ready to have that conversation because I want them to have made some measurable progress on our list of priorities, you know, by the time we meet again so that we can really tweak things. And in between, we have lots of different email. I'm completely available and they're, you know, emailing me their questions and some of them are WhatsApping me their questions and, and, and we're going from there. The thing that I did find is that, you know, coaching is not inexpensive, as you know, you know, as a coach, and it's really an investment. And some people just aren't at the place where they can make that kind of financial investment. 
So what I recently did was I wrote a book called The Better Budget Guide. And the point of the book is to really give over all of my, you know, advice, my system for, for how to get on a budget, live on a budget, overcome the obstacles of being on a budget, um, and make it available to people at a really inexpensive price so that they can, you know, get started on their own. Some people still want that one-on-one -on -one contact and they really need that, that accountability. But other people are ready to like, okay, let me read the words of wisdom. I'm going to go live them. And that's all they need. So if your listeners are interested, they can go to betterbudgetguide.com. And I even created a coupon code because you know I'm all about saving money just for your listeners. It's legacy. So normally you can get the book and the workbook together for $14.99. If they use the code legacy, it's $9.99. That's outstanding. Okay. And then if people want to reach out to you to kind of go in, in more depth, I'm sure that's on your website. Is there an email? What's the best way? Yes. Okay. I would love to get their emails at mara at kosheronabudget.com. Um, and again, betterbudgetguide.com is the book. Kosheronabudget.com is the blog. And by the way, if they're interested in the grocery course, it's going to be launching next month. I actually was writing it before you called me. Um, they can go to kosheronabudget.com backslash grocery to get more information about the course. Outstanding. Thank you so much for the time. I really Thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.